Hello everyone. Welcome to our Saturday Dhamma broadcast. Today I'll be talking a little bit about experience. And then of course we'll have our usual question and answer session. So, uh, I like to remind my students about the focus of, on experience in Buddhism. It's a way of describing the framework the Buddha used to describe reality. If you look at all of the Dhammas the Buddha taught in relation to meditation and the nature of reality, you can see a pattern that they all relate back to an experiential outlook. As opposed to a conceptual outlook. A conceptual outlook is where you create reality in your mind, an idea of what reality is. Even science does this, if you're not, not to be disparaging, but just to point out that when you take a framework like the atomic structure of matter, you're, you're ultimately conceptualizing that in your mind. It's not that it, the things that science explains are true or not true, it's that the activity related to that outlook is conceptual. You don't experience those things, you see. So it's not a question of what's true, what's not true, what's right, what's not right. It's a question of what is what is involved with the engaging with that framework. When you engage with the atomic structure of matter as a framework for reality, you're conceptualizing. And when you look at something, you don't see the atomic structure, but you conceive in your mind. There's mental activity involved. There's mental conceptual activity, conceptualization. And, and all of that is on top of the more fundamental uh, activity, which is experiential, right? So anything but an experiential outlook, an experiential framework, is, is going to involve additional conceptualization, and it's going to largely ignore 
or overlook the actual experience. Because you're not focused on experience when you're thinking about concepts. Even putting aside like physics or, or chemistry. In our ordinary everyday life, when you open the door to your bedroom, go into the kitchen, engage with your family, you're largely going to be conceptualizing, thinking about them, who they are, thinking about your activities for the day, maybe you go to get some food to eat, and all of this is conceptualizing. You see something, and on top of the experience of seeing, there's a concept of it being this or that, and, and all of your narrative about that object. So there's still additional conceptualization. This is what makes an experiential framework special, different, and useful. Because it, it, if you're focused on experience, then it's the one outlook that doesn't add anything on top of what's actually happening. When you direct your mind towards experience, there's nothing, there's nothing additional, there's nothing added. There's nothing superfluous or nothing extraneous. It has that advantage. And that advantage allows, well, two things. First, it allows you to live, live peacefully. There's a simplicity to it that is quite peaceful if you become skilled at actually doing that. And second, it allows you to see all of the things you might be doing wrong, all of the, the harmful activities that you engage in on this level, on this fundamental experiential level, like all of your engagement with concepts is going to be fraught with biases, with... Uh, with conceivings, with views, beliefs, opinions you know, that that might be might be right, might be wrong, and you you'll start to see that many of them are wrong. So, experiences can't stress how important it is to focus on experience in in the practice of Buddhism, and just as a means of bettering ourselves on a fundamental level. Sorry, just adjusting my audio, maybe that's better. Let me know if there's any problems.
So I just wanted to go through sort of a survey of our relationship with experience in the practice of the Dhamma. So the first thing to talk about related to experience is the means by which we develop this perception of experience, of reality as experiences, how we're actually experiencing the world. And that's where the four foundations of mindfulness fit in. Four foundations of mindfulness are a tool used to... They're a conceptual tool. There's nothing... There's nothing magical about them. It, it sounds kind of like a magical, special tool. It is special, but it's special because it, we know it comes from someone who really did understand reality and and more, that he was an expert at teaching it. They really understood things as they were. And so we can appreciate, we can... We can assume that it's going to be something special in that way, but there's nothing magical about it. It's just a tool that allows us to subdivide reality into categories that are easily processed and easily engaged in. And when we apply ourselves to these foundations or these applications where we establish our mind, fix our mind on the realities, when we grasp things as they are, the body as body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind, dhammas as dhammas. Our mind starts to acclimatize, starts to shift towards seeing things just as they as experiences. We start to notice experiences in in uh, on a level that we don't normally don't normally experience them, don't normally see them. The second step is where we start to, as a result of focusing on experience, we start to, well, see experience. We start to see the makeup of experience. The makeup means the things that make up experience. It's not a. It, it, it doesn't sound very profound. It's not a very profound thing, but it's a very important thing. It 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 defines the shift. How you know that you're actually focused on experience when you're seeing the makeup of experience, when you're seeing reality as these aspects of experience, and and it's quite simple. The simplest way of understanding it is physical and mental components. 
when the stomach rises, you don't experience it as, oh, my stomach is rising. You experience it as a motion, as a tension in the, in the stomach. A tensing and then a release. Tensing when the stomach rises, releasing when the stomach falls. There's a feeling. It's not a stomach, it's an experience. And you'll notice this with the foot. With the foot, there are feelings involved, sensations involved. And you start to notice this with all of the many things we experience, seeing, hearing, there's a physical component. There's the object, there's the organ that, that receives the phenomenon. And you also start to see things about the mind. You start to see the mental aspect of experience. With first of all, the mental aspect that actually experiences things. You'll see that you don't always notice that the stomach is rising, only when the mind is there as well, right? Only when there is this mental component. And then when the mental component is somewhere else, there's no more experience of the rising or falling. No more experience of the foot. And you start to notice the contents of the mind, the reactions to things. You start to notice pain and pleasure and our reactions to pain and pleasure and calm. And, and not only notice, but see more clearly. Right? Seeing clearly is a big part of this process to get from step to step to the end. There's an increase in clarity as you go. The third step is understanding how these aspects of experience work together. And this is where the ideas of karma and cause and effect come in. As you, as you focus on experience, you focus on the, the six senses, you focus on the mental and physical aspects, we start to see how they, they, they go in sequence and they create chains. As I said, you'll start to see the, your reactions and you'll see how that works. When you have a pain, then there'll be a reaction to the pain. There's a reaction to the pain, then there's a desire to free yourself from the pain, and there's activity to relieve the pain, and so on. This is important because a lot of our reactions, of course, cause increased suffering. They don't actually better our situation. When we, get, when we are stressed about something, anxious, afraid, angry, frustrated, sad, depressed, or craving, wanting, yearning. I start to see the 
the cause and effect relationship between things. We start to see how we develop habits of causal consequence, the chaining of our experiences together, and this repeated chaining that creates habits and the augmenting of the habits through repeated engagement. This is where mental problems come from, real mental illness comes from this repeated uh, reaffirmation of bad habits. Once we start to see this cause and effect, we start to work it out. We start to engage with the experience, not, not actively changing it, but paying better attention. And it starts to work itself out based on this attention, based on this, this better point of view, really. It's like we've got a better angle or a better... Uh, a better place to view the situation from. It's like getting a better angle when you have a photo shoot or something. You can get a better perspective. You're able to see more clearly what's going on. And when you're watching a, a show or something, get a better angle on it. This, this better angle is our, our clarity of perception like focusing a camera, we're able to see more clearly. This allows us to change our habits. It reduces our engagement. It reduces our our reifying or our encouraging bad habits, right? When you see something as unpleasant, you, you, you stop encouraging it. And a lot of the problem we start to see is we just didn't notice how bad it was for us. And so we blindly encouraged, incited, and strengthened bad habits. And that all starts to reduce, starts to break down. And this is where the three characteristics come in. Because a way of explaining what's going on is you start to see that the things that were worth clinging to, because they were stable, satisfying, controllable, are not stable, satisfying, or controllable, and so not worth clinging to, not worth getting involved in, not worth trying to fix or control or keep or chase away. But that activity is not a solution. It's not helpful. It's not viable because the the things we thought were amenable to change, to control, to keeping, to enjoying, are not amenable to those at all. They're unsatisfying, uncontrollable, unpredictable chaotic.
And this really encompasses the majority of our meditation practice. Once we've passed through those first stages of understanding reality, you know, the, the makeup of reality, how um, reality works together, there's just a deepening of our understanding, our clarity, our perspective, our familiarity with good experiences, bad experience, with all experience, till we become familiar until we're able to see reality just as it is, without any reaction, without any clinging, without any need or want. And then finally comes the point where we let go of experience. Let go means we, we stop clinging. Rather than getting stuck on anything where we become independent, where we're no longer in need of this or that or anything, where we're no longer dependent on circumstance, And this is where Nibbana comes in, where the mind lets go and there's freedom, an experience of release. And all of this takes place in this framework of experiential reality. So if this all sounds very technical, I hope it doesn't, but just to bring it down to earth right now at this moment, sitting in your chair or on your cushion or on your bed. This, the listening to the sound of my voice, the temperature in the room around you, the pressure on the various parts of your body, uh, the thoughts in the mind, the emotions. the sights, the sounds, the smells, the feelings. All of these are ever-present. And they're the doorway. They provide this path that is always accessible. And by simply focusing on them and, and engaging with them using the four foundations of mindfulness, it, it leads in this very clear and straightforward direction, this, this path towards freedom from freedom from clinging, freedom from suffering. So just some words on experience. That's the talk for today. If we have questions, go ahead with that. All right, we have questions. Let's begin. If a view or opinion spontaneously arises in the mind all at once, how should I note it? It doesn't feel like I'm actively thinking something through, so maybe knowing instead of thinking? Yeah, either one is fine. Yeah, I mean, knowing is a little bit problematic because... 
the viewer opinion you might not be you might not know the viewer opinion you believe it so if you want to say believing that might be just to be clear in your mind that you don't actually know whether it's true just be careful about that that you don't when you think you know something just because you think you know it doesn't mean you actually do know it it's still thinking and I, I would still probably go with thinking when I acknowledge and see that I can't know what will happen the very next moment there is a big letting go is that the correct understanding of what non-self means or is there something else um so this kind of question comes up often and i think it comes from a, a concern that you, there's a concern that we have a concern that we do actually we will actually experience the three characteristics and so we're constantly or often um worried about it or or concerned I, I better you know i better make sure i see these three things right and so you want affirmation that what you saw was the three characteristics but to be clear when you actually do fully see the three characteristics any one of them the next experience is going to be nibbana it's going to be a cessation of you know there's a bit it's super mundane so the three characteristics are characteristics of all things that arise they're they're not self and so so kind of the answer is yes through through realizing impermanence it, that that it's unpredictable that helps you see non-self it helps you appreciate the non-self characteristic but don't worry about it like don't be obsessed with was that non-self was that non-self it's not it, it's a good question in a way because it's good for us to talk about these things and understand them but it's not so healthy to ask this question when you're practicing so be wondering or or, or be uh, concerned as to whether something is the one of the three characteristics because it leads to clinging, clinging both when you don't experience it and clinging when you do experience it. When you do have this kind of experience, you then think, yeah, I'm doing good. And, and it can lead to complacency. It can lead to distraction. Um, so on the one hand, I would say, yeah, kind of be reassured that that's the way things are. Just don't cling to it. And, and just understand that as long as you're practicing, you're going to be seeing the three characteristics more and more clearly. It's just, it's not anything abstruse or, or um, esoteric. It, it, it really is the nature of things. So it would be a shock if you didn't see them when you're looking at reality. If you didn't see them, it would mean you really aren't practicing. And most of seeing them, it, we never even realize that that was the three characteristics. It doesn't even register. And there will be these moments of clarity where it just seems so obvious and you do let go of something because you saw something very clear about the three characteristics, but you're just always going to be seeing that. Don't focus too much on it, focus just on seeing. And be reassured by experiences like these, or just be reassured in general that 
that's just the way things are. Intellectually, it's pretty easy to see or to appreciate that that's the nature of things. The real problem is um, that even though intellectually we can appreciate, we still have this misapprehension of things as being stable, satisfying, controllable, just because we're not clear, because we haven't really gained the familiarity, we haven't spent enough time focusing on reality. I, ju I, mean, I just mean to say don't get too concerned about it. When focusing on the rising and falling of the stomach, and specifically when waiting for the rising, why is it recommended to note sitting? Doesn't that distract from the upcoming rising? I'm not quite sure what you're referring to, but we often tell meditators to add in sitting after, you know, to add a third object during the course. The course will tell them at some point to add a third object. Um, but the, the premise of your question is is problematic because distracting from an object is 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 nothing to do with with insight med with vipassana meditation. That would be something you'd be concerned with in samatha, where you want to focus on a single object. Reality is always going to be different objects, new objects. The problem, so a big problem that we're trying to address is the fixation on, on objects, on specific objects. And, and pushing you to switch objects is helpful in terms of weaning you off this need for, for rhythm, this need for, for stability. So adding in sitting is like throwing a monkey wrench into things, like adding a third ball to a juggler. They make it more challenging for you, give you a new dynamic to try and train you and to 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 expose the propensity or the the in inclination of the mind to cling, the in inclination of the mind to rely on stability. What is your advice for practicing walking meditation while experiencing things such as nausea? I find it very difficult and tend to switch to lying down to meditate. Uh, well, I'd start with, with standing meditation before lying. Try and note it while you're standing. And just stand until the nausea goes away. And if it doesn't, of course, you can sit down or even lie down. That's fine. Just be mindful as you do, and mindful when you switch. Can someone with deep-rooted trauma practice meditation, or will it make things worse? So it's a bit of a... They, you know, the, the question is a bit too broad. They depend on both the, the circumstances of the individual, the circumstances of the practice, right? Practice meditation is is is. There's a lot that goes into doing something to make it actually practicing meditation, and and I'm talking about both the technique that the practitioner uses and the conditions in which they practice. Do they have a teacher? Are they meeting with that teacher? Are they living with that teacher, etc.? How much are they practicing? 
So on, on the one hand, the, the nature of the actual practice is going to change the answer. And also the nature of the trauma, the nature of the individual. If someone has trauma and that's all that's wrong, that's not so bad. That's actually pretty amenable to change through through insight, through mindfulness meditation. But if someone has mental issues as well, like maybe they are suicidal or um, have other mental, mental instabilities that can have already cropped up through the trauma, then uh, that's going to exacerbate the situation, make it more of a delicate situation. So I, I would generally say yes, but for such a person, I would encourage them to try to find a, well, well two things, I guess, um, practicing on their own. If practicing on their own, I would suggest for them to just be careful and vigilant and clear in their mind that they're following the rules. And I would encourage them to follow a technique to the T and always remind themselves that they have to follow the technique and to try and remind themselves by reading about the technique and rereading about the technique so that they're always sure doing accordingly. Because someone with real mental issues, real emotional issues or, or whatever, is, is more likely to go off track. Just be, be your trainer, always keeping yourself on track. And don't push yourself too hard. Don't think that you're going to be able to do intensive practice on your own because some people do fall into that trap and can actually make things worse by pushing themselves so hard that they stop being mindful and it's just about pushing and it becomes obsessive. And by the time they realize they aren't actually meditating, they've just gone off the deep end. So not to scare anyone, it's not meditation isn't scary, but you're dealing with the mind. And if you stop actually practicing mindfulness and think you're practicing mindfulness without actually following the technique, it can get dangerous. You just get lost in the forest. Meditation, mindfulness isn't dangerous. Just make sure you're actually being mindful. But the second thing is if you, if you do want to do, say, a course, that I would encourage such a person to actually have a good relationship with a teacher and make sure that they're actually um, able to depend on that teacher. I think ideally to be in a center with a, a meditation center with a teacher. Is walking a more samatha-like meditation than sitting, since you are trying to maintain focus on the feet and stopping only for bigger distractions? Samatha meditation focuses on a concept. Walking meditation focuses on ultimate reality, so no, it's nothing like samatha. Is it discouraged to do shorter meditation sessions throughout the day if necessary or practical? Surely not, but I can't get this notion out of my mind. Should we not just do as much as we can? So there are disadvantages to trying to do fewer long sessions, just as there are disadvantages to doing more short sessions. I think I, I, I don't have a way to quantify which is or where the, the optimum is, but there is an optimal uh, balance 
between length of session and number of sessions. If you do lots and lots of very short sessions, you're going to you're going to to um, it's going to be to your detriment. And and likewise, if you try to do all of your meditation in fewer sessions like one session per day, one long session, and try to just keep increasing that one session, it's diminishing returns. You won't get nearly as much out of both approach. Shorter sessions are too short. If they're too short, they're just going to be too easy, and it's a cop-out. And longer sessions are going to be not only too hard, but so infrequent that the rest of the time, well, what are you doing? The rest of the time that you're not mindful, you've you've wasted the opportunity to uh, to re recenter yourself, to refocus yourself. I mean, formal meditation is a great support for the rest of your day. So if you're only doing it once a day, you've got 24 hours between sessions. So find a balance. You really have to find a balance where it's challenging, but also continuous. Could you elaborate more on experiencing Dhamma as Dhamma? I have difficulty in understanding this term, especially when it refers to other things other than teachings. So it does refer to teachings, but it's important to understand that by teachings, it's a specific progression of teachings, and it's, it's also realities. So it's not just any realities. The Dhammas are, are a... Uh, a teaching-based set of realities. But what Dhamma is Dhamma. The, the, the Buddha says that for all four of the Satipatthana, and it just means being able to distinguish things as they are. And and it, it's not really Dhammas as Dhamma. It's seeing in regards to these things that they are these things. Right. If you read the Pali or if you get a sense of what the Buddha is talking about, it, it really is just saying, seeing things as they are. For all of the things that you experience, seeing them in them. Kaya, kaya, nupasi, vihrati. Kaya, in the kaya, in the body. In regards to the body, one sees body. And, and it's just an elaborate way of saying, you see it as it is. You don't see body as something else. You don't see anything as something else, or more than it is. You see it just as it is, just what it is. How does one know that one is making progress in meditation? Well, I'll say two things, and if you've heard, if anyone's heard me give answers before, they know probably what I'm going to say. But first of all, the 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 way you know that you're making progress is you have less greed, less anger, and less delusion. That's really the best answer I can give. But at the same time, I would say don't focus too much on progress. Try and get a clear appreciation of of the benefits or of the beneficial nature of mindfulness. And just focus on trying to be mindful. Try and appreciate the clarity that comes from being mindful and not worry about something about progress. It's it's misleading. 
You're not going anywhere. What do you mean by progress? We, when we think like this, we generally have a wrong understanding of what we're trying to get out of the practice, and that leads to discouragement because it doesn't bring the things we think it's going to bring. And you miss the things that it actually is bringing. It's bringing clarity, and you can see that every moment that you practice. But then we think, well, what, what good is clarity, right? We, we go beyond, which is ridiculous because clarity is so good. It's so perfect. Are you saying you can't see the difference between clarity and delusion, right? Be content with that and be content with being a... It's like, it's like being content with being a good person. Why do you do good deeds? What good is it for you? It's a ridiculous question. I know being a good person is good, right? Regardless of what happens to me. I don't know if that even... That, that may, to some extent, not make sense because you think we need... We live in this... this frame of mind that somehow we need um, a conceptual idea of what the goal, what the reward is going to be, right? But that's a problem. Our Think of the Pavlov uh, experiment, the, the conditioning, right? Reward. We're conditioned for reward. And that's the problem. That's not what this is. This is not a Pavlovian uh, conditioning practice where you, you you get some reward and it makes you want to do it more because then you're going to get the reward absolutely not you're not going to ever feel that way about meditation it's never going to feel like something you crave because of the reward it gives you right so this this thinking about what is the reward is pavlovian it's it's um classic or classic i can't remember it's conditioning anyway it's pavlovian conditioning and you're not going to get that from meditation. It's not going to make you want it more. So it's like being a good person. You're content with being a good person. You're reassured. And in fact, it is being a good person because the best sort of person is one with a clear mind. And, and you know, putting aside the idea of a person, just being the best or the right, the rightest, the most right way to be is mindful. And you can see that. If you're mindful, there's... You, you, what you will start to appreciate is how good it is to be mindful. It just is good. You don't have to worry about what the consequences or the results are going to be. I mean, to some extent, I, I do. I'm going to get in trouble because you, you do have to appreciate the goal and where we're headed. It's just that should never be your focus when you're meditating. Try and be mindful and and create the clarity of mind and just focus on increasing clarity. You can have an intellectual sense that you know where you're headed or what the reasons are and, and what the problems, what the, the causes, what made you want to do this. And all of the Buddhist theory about the path and Nibbana and so on, it's all, that's all good. It just shouldn't be your focus. Is it ever advisable to lie to avoid potential harm? No. Now again, this is a sort of relates to what I was just saying. Is that you know that lying is is unwholesome, is is twisted, and so you don't care about the results because lying is just twisted, perverse.
In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha talks about the third one as seeing the different qualities of mind, but in our practice it is seeing thoughts clearly. Why the difference? So, it's not, that's not exactly true. The, um, the third one is about the mind, and the Buddha talks about the various types of mind, but it's also about whatever th thoughts are, whether there is uh, greed or not greed. So knowing the content of the thought is the, the third one as well. But on a practical level, you can't focus on those qualities like greed, anger, delusion as separate from the five hindrances, right? So if you want to nitpick, then you, you have to say that, well, these these same qualities, they are in both the third satipatthana and the fourth satipatthana. So practically, the way to make them, the, the, the separating, the putting, the ignoring of those aspects in the third satipatthana is for the purpose of creating a clarity of division when you explain it to meditators. So when you give, when, we're, when we give our technique, which is a way of practicing, it's just one way, but it is a very um, concrete, practical way of approaching and practicing the four satipatthana. Um, relating them simply as the hindrances makes more sense. So, if you read the third Satipatthana, it has not just the hindrances, but it has uh, qualities of mind or, or types of mind or states of mind, like the mind is exalted or in, you know, inferior, is distracted or is concentrated or so on. And all of that relates to the process of thinking, the process of remembering and planning and so on. And all of that relates to this foundation of thinking. So to separate that out from those qualities, we put the hindrances in their own category. That's all. I mean, it's, it's, it's nothing special. I mean, it, there's, there's, no, there's no one way of doing this, of, of categorizing them. And the point is to approach the realities talked about in the Satipatthana Sutta. So we do that through this technique. I mean, there's no question that the way of practicing is focused or based on the four Satipatthana. It's just a specific way of of approaching them. But that, that is, you know, totally exactly how the Satipatthana Sutta does it. We just ignore those parts because we're already talking about them in this different section. And we don't exactly ignore them. It's just we acknowledge that whenever when you when whatever thoughts there might be, they're going to have this baggage. And so whether you put them in the third Satipatthana or the fourth Satipatthana, you're still going to note them the same. If you if you're thinking about something, there's a there's a quality and the mind has a quality of Liking it, well, then you'd say liking, right? Another thing is that when you note the thinking, you'll see all the different qualities that the mind might have. You'll see the different, differing qualities of the mind. This mind is like this, this mind is like that. But you'll see it all when you say thinking.
It's a good question. It's worth no. It's worth reading the Satipatthana Sutta. But I mean, there's no question that when you practice, when you say thinking, you'll see all these things, and of course, when you notice them particularly, you note them as the hindrances already. So there's no need to repeat it. I've been practicing vipassana meditation on sensation and anapana, but nowadays it's difficult to practice regularly. I've been going through this new job transition and I couldn't sit for four days. Any advice? I think you might be practicing a different tradition, so I can't give you any specific advice. I'd recommend if you're interested in our tradition, you could read our booklet, sign up for an at-home course. If anyone else is interested, you're, of course everyone is welcome to join. It's all free, no cost. But read the booklet if you're interested and you can sign up for a meditation course. Uh, specific advice for that question though? Um, I mean, in our tradition, we have you be mindful during the day so you can be mindful of things during daily life as well. You can read about that in the booklet. It talks about some of that. So maybe consider being mindful and applying the same principles as throughout your day, which some traditions might not talk about, I don't know. In my country, it is very taboo to be too generous. Do you know a way to train for a generous mind without involving other people? You don't need a generous mind. You just need a mind that lets go. The great thing about generosity is it really helps you let go. Giving is such a thing, you know. I mean, as a monk, I rely on people's generosity, so we see all sorts of it. And giving giving comes in many shapes and forms. And one thing you notice that is really important is that a lot of giving isn't actually giving up. We'll give things sometimes that we don't need, We'll give things because we want something back from it. Uh, we'll often give things with conditions, expecting. We give things um, while maintaining control of them. We, we, we give things without actually giving up. And to actually give up is such a powerful practice and it's so supportive and the Buddha recommended it because it ties in very nicely with the process of mindfulness meditation, which is all about giving up. So when you give up and let go, you don't actually have to give anything to anyone, but you're able to, you're able to give anything to anyone because you lose all of your attachments to things. I wouldn't focus too much about being generous. I mean, simply Letting go of expectations is the whole goal in the first place. It's what makes you generous, like truly generous. And not exactly, I mean, generous is even misleading. It's almost like you don't care. Oh, you want this? Okay, sure, you can have it. It's wrong thinking to be obsessed with generosity and thinking that you have to go out of your way to give. You really shouldn't go out of your way to give. You should just always make it a part of your life that when someone needs something and it's appropriate to give, you have no qualms about giving and giving up 
in the sense that I don't expect you to give me anything back for this. I don't expect to have any control over this. This is no longer mine. Right? That's the sort of thing that supports our practice and supports giving up this idea of mine in the first place, me. Right? It's a deeper sort of giving. So I don't know if that helps too much. I mean, it's a shame that you're in a country where people don't like to give things. Maybe you can start a new trend. But most importantly, don't be too obsessed with it. And it's just a part of life. It's an important thing to remember because it's going to challenge us. It's one of those things that helps us see our clinging. When we consider giving something and we see how attached we are to it, how sad we are to lose something that's valuable to us. Giving things that are hard to give, that's a good, good challenge for us. And and maybe maybe in your example, giving things even when it makes people upset, you know, makes people um, not like you or something like that. You know, just ch the challenge there. Maybe you'll you'll get you'll get people criticizing you. So the ability to put up with criticism in the face of wrong view, really. Anybody says you're too generous. You should read the Vaisantara Jataka. That's a good one. Everyone should read the Vaisantara Jataka. It's, he challenged, he, he made a determination to give up everything. And no matter what, he would give up everything. And a part of it was the realization that it, it, not, nothing was his in the first place. The, realize, sorry, the realization more that it didn't matter what he gave up because it's all just samsara. Even if you give up your life, you haven't lost anything. You're just going to be born again. You give up your eyes. Once when the Bodhisattva was a king, he gave up his eyes. He did an eye surgery and gave his eyes to a blind man. It's just like, you know, what, what is the meaning? What, is the, what, what, what good is there in keeping? What good is there in holding on? And he was even asked for his children. And he washed his hands of them. Because, again, the realization that it's all, what is it to my children? What, what ultimately is it to them? He gave up his wife, he gave up his children. And, and the, the, the power of the goodness, the, I mean, it may not even seem like goodness to give up your children, but the power of the, the pure non-attachment, you know, it realigned everything, it kept everything in a good way, and of course he was reunited with his children and his wife. Because that's the most, that's the defining factor of samsara, is the goodness in our hearts, the rightness, the purity. That's what leads to good things. And so he reminded his children that this is what's important, is keep your heart pure. Pretty radical. Do you have any advice or experience with removing drain gnats or maybe their fruit flies humanely? I have some in my shower and sink in my bathroom. I don't. I mean, I'm not special in this that I have some special insight on it, but it's good that you're thinking about that. Just don't kill them. You know, seek, seek advice. People who know things about such things. I mean, I guess my first question would be, why do you have to get rid of them? They're short-lived anyway. They come and they go. 
They don't carry diseases, do they? Sounds like fruit flies more than gnats. I, I'm surprised that gnats would be living in your drain, but I don't know. Insects are interesting. We should really know more about in insects as Buddhists because we can get a sense of the sorts of things that attract and repel them. If you can find something that repels them, you can you can free yourself from it. What precautions should be taken by people with mental health issues, i.e. past trauma, when learning meditation? Uh, well, I think I already went over this. Don't push yourself too hard if you're doing it alone. Um, and have a good relationship with a teacher if you're doing it with a teacher. And make sure to ask questions and provide information. And, and, to f and in, both, in both cases to absolutely, again, follow the teaching to the letter. Make sure you're following the teacher and teaching. I mean, don't be paranoid about it. Am I following? I'm not sure. Just be clear. I mean, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's not like you have to read between the lines or anything. It's just the difference between going on your own and, and assuming that you can do it your way or adapt things versus actually saying, no, the teaching says to do it this way, so I'll do it this way. No ad no adapting, no improvising. I mean, a little improvising, but only improvising where it's not explicitly stated otherwise. Just make sure you're clear about the teachings and you're practicing. It's not hard. It's not hard. It's, it's not like something you have to be paranoid about. It's just don't improvise, don't uh, modify. Because that's where people go wrong when they stop practicing and they think they're practicing or they... They they don't bother to check whether they're practicing according to the teaching. Don't kid yourself that you can do it better than the teacher or something like that. That's all. There's not. It's not. I don't mean to scare you either. I want to be clear. It's not dangerous. Mindfulness is helpful. So the only the only rare case where someone goes wrong is when they just ignore the teachings, stop doing the teachings, start doing their own thing or push themselves too hard when they're alone or even with a teacher you know the teacher gives you advice you go off and you just push yourself push and push and push until you drive yourself crazy don't do that it's not rocket science i mean it's not it's not dangerous you're not likely to fall into these it's just beware be aware of you know, no extremes Thank you, Bhante. We've come to the hour and have Great. no further tier ones. Good, good questions. Good group. Thank you all. And thank you, Ulu and Chris, for your help. Sadhu. Sadhu.